we all know that what we believe matters in this life. It affects the real world decisions that we make and the actions that we take big and small. I'll give you an example of a big one from history. Christopher Columbus believed that the world was round. And that had a real world, real world impact on him. He set out for India going the opposite direction that most people usually took. I'll give you a small example from my own life. I believe that Verizon will turn off my phone if I don't pay the phone bill. And therefore every month I pay it. What we believe matters. It actually affects the decisions that we make the actions that we take in the real world. But can what I believe affect more than just my rational actions, my, my behavior, the decisions I make? Can, can what I believe actually change me so that I am no longer what I was, but am now something, someone different? The modern world answers that question with a resounding no. Modern medicine points to the extraordinary persistence of personality. Personalities basically do not change, says modern medicine, even in the face of of kind of mind-altering diseases. Personality at its core remains extraordinarily consistent. Advances in our understanding uh, of, of genetics is pushing many people toward what we might call a biological determinism. You, you are what you are. You are your genes. And there's really not much you can do about it. Now, the result of this scientific consensus about the, the, the impossibility of fundamental change in the human being, that, that has led, I think, uh, largely to the abandonment of, of the old vision of, of what human life was all about. The, the old vision of human life was, was one of moral reformation we needed to change inside as the path towards well-being. What the classical world called the bene essay, the, the well-being of the human life. And the only way you get there, we used to think, was, was through change, through, through actual moral reformation. These days, actually, we've substituted an entirely different process, an entirely different path. These days, we pursue the therapeutic skills of self-acceptance on the path not to well-being, but the path to well-adjusted being. Now, that leaves religion in a quandary, not just Christianity, but all religions, Because religion has always been about the transformation of the self, not the acceptance of the self. But if the modern world's right, if if we can't change, but, but all we can do is kind of accept ourselves and manage ourselves a little bit better, then not only is there no place for religion, but but don't all of our other hopes and beliefs come crashing down to the ground as well? This summer, we're considering our life together as a local church, a life that is centered, as we saw at at the beginning of this series, on a set of common beliefs. It's how Paul starts the book of Titus that we're studying this summer. 
But as we're going to see in our passage this morning, Paul's conviction is not only that what we believe affects what we do, but that belief in the gospel actually changes us. So that we are not who we were, even though we are not yet who we will be. So turn with me, if you would, to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Titus 2, verse 11. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pews or the chairs, uh, that's, that's uh, found on page 1,859. 1,859. Titus chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 11 to 15. We're going to finish out the chapter today. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. For all of chapter two, Paul has been arguing that sound doctrine, the gospel of Jesus Christ, should produce in Christians respectable lives, lives that actually commend the truth of what we believe to those around us. Now, in our verse today, he finally tells us why this is so. You you see that verse 11 uh, begins with that word for. So so everything that he said up until this point is now going to be explained because of what he's about to say. He's going to tell us why this is so, why sound doctrine should produce respectable lives. What is it then about the gospel that changes us? What is it about the gospel that actually makes it possible for us to live godly lives. Paul gives us four things. First, the gospel changes us because the gospel comes to all of us. The gospel comes to all of us. Verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Every other religion in the world including, I would argue, that religion that goes by the name of Western secular enlightenment rationalism. Every religion in the world is rooted in either a specific culture or even more narrowly, a specific ethnicity, except Christianity. Christianity is the lone exception that I've been able to find. Paul makes very clear here, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. What is this grace of God that has appeared? He's referring to the historical incarnation of Jesus Christ, his person and his work, what he did in his life, his death and his resurrection. And we learn about all of that in the gospel message. And, and what, what Paul underscores in this very first verse is, is that this savior and this message about this savior is for everyone. It has appeared to all men. Even though its origin was biblical Judaism, no one is excluded from Christianity because they're not a Jew. 
in fact, we can push that further. No one is excluded from Christianity because of their race, because of their class, because of their ethnicity, because of their background, because of their gender, because of their education. No one is excluded from Christianity because of who they are. As, as the verses actually above, the, the first uh, ten verses of, of chapter 2 indicate, salvation is available even to slaves, even to Gentiles, even to Cretans, even to people like you and me. The grace of God is available to everyone. That's where Paul begins. Now, I need to be clear. Paul is not saying that everyone is saved. Paul's not even saying that every single person has heard the message of salvation or even will hear the message of salvation. What he's saying is that no class, no category of human being is excluded from salvation because of their class or category. The, the, the salvation, the change that the Christianity offers is universal in its scope. Even if it's not universal in its application. And that is very different from every other religion in the world. Now, why does this matter? Well, it matters because it speaks to the truth of Christianity. Well, first, any promise of change that is not universally applicable you know, to, to all people really cannot address our deepest human needs, which are common to all people. You, you, you see, some, some people in this world need electricity and they don't have it, right? Some people in this world need democracy and they don't have it. Some people in this world need the availability of vaccines. They don't have it. Now, now all of those are, are needs, but they're not universal needs. Some people don't even want those things. And life will go on without it. No, no but what, what is universal to all of us as human beings, what our, what our deepest need is, is for a change of our hearts. Not, not for a change of our circumstances. Not, not for a change of, of the goods and services that are available to us. But no, a change inside. A change of who we are. A religion that does not offer such a, a solution to, to the universal human problem, it's not a true religion. Christianity is universally applicable because it really promises to address one thing and one thing only, and that is our universal human need for change inside. Second, any promise of change that is only applicable to some types of people must just logically, inevitably, be merely cultural or, or local. If a, a, a promise of religion, if it can't change everyone, well, how can I be sure it'll change anyone? If it can't change everyone, if some are excluded because of race or gender or whatever, then how can I be certain it'll change me? Third, I think most, maybe most importantly, what, what this verse does is it puts the onus on each one of us to decide what are we going to do with this salvation that has now appeared in the person of Jesus Christ and the preaching of the gospel. 
What are we going to do with this message? What are we going to do with this offer of salvation? You know, it's tempting to hide behind the question, what about those who have never heard? I get it. It's a real question. And what I'll tell you is I, I'm, I don't know that I know the answer to that question. But I know the God who knows the answer to that question. And I think that's, while, while it's an important question, while it's a real question, I think that's a question that at the end of the day, we're going to have to entrust to God. In the meantime, what about me? What about you who have heard this message? If, in fact, this is a salvation that excludes no category of human being, then the real issue is what are you going to do about it now that you've heard? The gospel brings with it an imperative, an imperative to decide, an imperative to respond. It, it's, since, since it claims to be the, the one and the only and a universal salvation available to all, then you can't just listen to it and put it on a shelf. You have to decide. Now, as a church, here is one, not the only, but one great motivation for missions and for evangelism. We understand that this is a message for everyone. This is not just a message for Westerners. It's not just a message for middle-class white people in America. It's, it's, it's not just a message for the educated or, or the uneducated. It is a message for everyone. And so we want to take this message to them, wherever they are. And, and I think primarily what that means is, is when we go out into the world with the message of this salvation, we're going to want to prioritize really two things. One, the proclamation of the gospel. We're going to want to prioritize preaching. We're going to want to prioritize church planting. There are lots of other things that have to happen in support of that, for sure. But it is the message of salvation that saves, not all the supporting things. So we want to make sure that as we think about you know, our mission budget here, that, we're accu- that we're, we are rightly kind of prioritizing the way we spend money. We want to prioritize the proclamation of the gospel. Second, we want to see the word of God, the message of salvation, translated into languages that people can understand. Bible translation, whether that's in written form or increasingly these days uh, in, in spoken form. Because there, there are many people who can't read, but they can, they can understand their language. Bible translation is a huge priority because it is the message that saves. And it saves all who receive it. You understand what that means? There is no one beyond the reach of the power of the gospel. So we don't give up. I have a feeling that that for those of you that are that are believers here, there's probably somebody in your mind, maybe even multiple people in your mind, that you think, no way, mm-mm, never gonna happen. This person is never going to be saved. They're, they're too tough. It's too distant. They're too hardened or cynical. Friends, it is the nature of the gospel to save all who receive it. No one is beyond the reach of the gospel. Have you put somebody 
in a category that, that effectively denies the truth of this verse. In your mind, have you put somebody in the category of not able to be saved? Beyond the gospel. Friend, that's not a biblical category. It might be a category in your mind, but it is not a biblical category. Let me encourage you to take them out of that category and put them back into the biblical category, which is that the gospel is able to save all who receive it. And then be the means of taking that message to them. The gospel comes to all because it's able to save all. Second, the gospel teaches us how to live now. The gospel teaches us how to live right now, today. Look at verse 12. It, that is the grace of God that's appeared, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. One of the modern critiques of Christianity is that disconnects people from the real world. Marx called it the opiate of the masses, you know, dulling them to the real problems that they face here in life. Others have accused Christianity of creating people that are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. But according to Paul, the gospel is not just a distraction from the problems of this life. According to Paul, the gospel is not just pious preparation for heaven that ignores life in the modern world today. No, Paul says that the gospel instructs us how to live right now. Specifically, Paul says the gospel instructs us in three different relationships that he really goes over in this verse. It it shows us, it teaches us how to live in relationship with ourselves. That's what he's getting at when he talks about being self-controlled. We've seen this word throughout chapter 2. To be self-controlled is to be someone who understands the art of living wisely in this world. Who, who thinks before he or she acts and who always acts in accord with justice and mercy and love. In, in other words, in accord with wisdom, just as God does. So so the gospel teaches us how to govern ourselves rather than be governed by our emotions and our passions and our and our circumstances. We know how to live in relationship with ourselves. Second, it teaches us how to live in relationship with others. He, he, He says that it teaches us to live upright lives. That's that second term he uses there. Literally just lives, righteous lives. Lives that relate to other people, because because this word justice is all about relationships between people, uh, lives that are characterized not by by self-serving self-interest, but but lives that are characterized by love, by fairness, by, by rightness, as we treat others as they should be treated, as we relate to others as they ought to be related to. And then third, it teaches us how to live in relationship with God. It shows us how to be godly, to to live godly lives. Self, others, God. I thought about it. I couldn't think of any other possible relationships. I think he's covered the waterfront. The Christian life, you see, according to Paul is all about life in community. 
relating to God, relating to others, relating even rightly to ourselves. Now, instruction often includes correction, and and Paul makes that clear. It means saying no, literally renouncing both the root of sin, that is ungodliness, a rebellion against God, and the outworking of sin as our, our worldly desires. Taken together, the, the positive instruction on self-control, upright and, and godly lives, and, and the, the negative instruction saying, saying no to ungodliness and worldly desires, t- taken together, the gospel teaches us how to live authentically human lives. Truly human lives. Human lives as they were created and meant to be lived by God. I think really what's going on in verse 12 is a reversal of Genesis 3. When you think about what happened to Adam and Eve, when, when they rebelled against God, when, when they first sinned, what, what happened to, to relationships? Well, first, they knew shame. They were not comfortable in their own skin anymore. They, they were, in, in a very profound way, out of right relationship with themselves. Second, they were immediately in conflict with each other, each blaming the other for, for what had happened. And, and, of course, they were out of relationship with God. Hiding from God, separated from him. And why? Well, because they rejected godliness. And, the, and, and instead, they, they acted on their own desires. The very first worldly desires. Friends, we're all students of our first parents. All of us know what this means to, 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 to know shame in our lives. To, to, to be out of relationship and in unjust conflict with the people around us. To be out of relationship with God. Friends, the gospel comes and teaches us just the opposite. And it teaches us to do this not someday in the future. Paul says right now, in this present age, today, the gospel instructs us in this. Now, in our context, I've been using this, this language, teaching, instruction. That's the way it's translated uh, in, our, in our English translations. In our context, teaching and instruction is all about knowledge. You know, facts, you learn something. But I began in my introduction by, by saying that Christianity is more than just knowledge that affects our decisions. I, I said that this passage is all about a knowledge of, of the gospel that, that actually changes us. It, it's, it's more than just a mere education. So does verse 12 contradict me? Not at all. In the Greco-Roman mindset... Education, teaching, did not produce knowledge. In the Greco-Roman world, of which Paul was a part, and into which he was writing, education, teaching, produced civilization. Not knowledge, but civilization. It's what changed men from barbarians to virtuous citizens. The Roman world was deeply concerned with the project of education, not because they needed workers that had lots of facts and skills at their fingertips, but because they were interested in transforming barbarians into citizens, virtuous citizens. Paul is picking up on that idea here. He's using the the, the language that would have been very familiar to them. and He's changing it. He's he's playing with it. It, It's not the classroom lecture. 
it, it's not the syllabus, the trivium and the quadrivium of, of Roman education that changes people. No, no, according to Paul, it's the gospel that transforms people. It, it's the historical appearance of Jesus Christ and the message about him that actually educates, that is, changes people from one sort of person, not barbarians, but but worldly and ungodly people into another sort of person, not virtuous citizens, but but Christians, self-controlled, upright, godly. How does the gospel transform sinners in this way? How does the gospel educate us in that old Roman sense of transforming us into something that we weren't before but are now? It's tempting to think it does this by, by turning it into an ethic, a, a, a moralism. It gives us a list of do this, don't do that, and that's, that's how you should, should live. But, but that's not at all how the gospel works. The gospel isn't an ethic. It isn't finally moralism. The gospel transforms us by changing our identity. The gospel tells me who I am by uniting me to Jesus Christ. It tells me who Jesus Christ is. He is the the second Adam, the the very image of God who came to live the life that we, the image bearers of God, were created to live but have not lived. The gospel tells me that in Christ, I am not someone who must use and abuse others. The gospel tells me that in Christ, I am not someone who, Whose, whose happiness and fulfillment is found in, in self-centered desires and pleasures. The gospel tells me that in Christ I am not someone whose dignity is determined by his circumstances or by what the people around me think of me. No, rather, the gospel connects me to Christ. And in Christ, I have a new identity. In Christ, through the gospel, I am, I am told, I am instructed, but more than that, I am actually given an identity in which, once again, I live out what I was created to live. Love of God, love of others. An identity in which my happiness and my fulfillment is found in relationship to God. Uh, an identity in, in which my, my dignity is grounded there. In God, not in my circumstances. In, in, in other words, when the gospel comes and instructs us, it does not teach me first what I should do, an ethic. No, it comes first and teaches me who I am in Christ. It gives me an identity. It changes my identity. And then in light of that new identity, it calls me now to live True to who I am in Jesus. The gospel, you see, should never be reduced to a mere ticket to heaven. Yes, the gospel gets you to heaven, but it's no ticket. The gospel is about a real world transformation of our identity. And identity is everything. Which means that if you're here this morning... And you call yourself a Christian. Maybe you've always thought of yourself as a Christian. But you don't live like a Christian. Then what you need to understand is that you don't have a behavior problem. 
you have an identity problem. Our lives, our, our actions, our, our, our behaviors do not determine who we are. No, it's just the other way around. Who we are, our identity, very much determines our lives, what we do. This is the way Jesus put it. Out of a man's heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. It's out of the heart that these things come. You, you understand what he's saying? These things don't make us bad. We do them because we are bad. Identity is everything. Identity matters. If you think of yourself as a Christian, you read through a book like Titus and you find yourself thinking, I am nothing like what he's describing. Then please, please do not set yourself a program of moral reform. Trying harder this week to, to do what, what, what Paul is talking about in this book. No, please simply consider that maybe you're not who you claim to be. Maybe you're not who you've long thought you were. It's got to start there with identity. If you're not a Christian, if you know you're not a Christian, uh, this certainly means it's time to give up your pursuit of impressing God with your behavior. He's not impressed. He's just not. He's God. We never even get close. Morality doesn't save us. It, it can't save us. And rather, morality must flow from identity. We first must be saved. We, we, we must first be instructed in the gospel. We must first be transformed from worldly barbarians into Christian citizens. By the gospel. And, and at that point, morality pretty much takes care of itself. God must change you before you can change yourself. Now, as a church, what does this mean for us in our teaching? Well, I, I don't mean to say that we should not teach the imperatives of Scripture. We should. There are lots of imperatives in Scripture. There are lots of commands to live this way, don't live that way. To, to, to be this way, don't, don't be that way. We should definitely teach the imperatives of Scripture to be self-controlled, to be upright, to be godly. But we need to remember to always teach those imperatives in relationship to the gospel itself. The imperatives come after. They are result. They are never cause. So this has huge implications, I think, for, for our parenting, for our discipling, for our children's ministry, for our adult Sunday school classes. We don't deal with sin as Christians. We don't deal with sin the way the world deals with sin. The, the, the world deals with sin by, by adopting a program of self-reform. That's not how we deal with sin. We don't deal with sin, whether it's in ourselves or with one another, or in our children's ministry, simply by teaching people to be good. Because sin and godliness, both, are fundamentally identity issues, not behavioral issues. 
So we must instruct people in who they are outside of Christ. Rebels against God. Sinners who who want to go their own way. We must teach people who Christ is. Very God and very man. True God and true man. The one who came down from heaven to live the life, the perfect, authentic human life that we should have but didn't. And then who gave that life as a sacrifice for sinners. And then we need to teach people who we become inside of Christ. Outside of Christ, who Christ is, inside of Christ. That through repentance and faith in Christ, we find a new identity. That that in the gospel, we are new people, new creations. And that identity says no to ungodliness, says no to worldly desires. Some of you are here this morning and and you're you're struggling with habitual sins. These, These sins tend to be secret sins, private sins, that you find yourself coming back to again and again. And you're tempted to think of this habitual sin as a problem, fundamentally, of self-control. A problem, fundamentally, of lack of discipline. And and what the gospel tells us is that while self-control is essential and discipline is essential, fundamentally, a habitual sin problem is a problem of habitually forgetting who you are in Christ. And thinking instead... That engaging in this sin will bring you some sort of happiness, some sort of relief, some sort of fulfillment. Brothers and sisters, we go after habitual sin not by trying harder, but by remembering who we are in Christ. It is that new identity that defeats habitual sin. Some of you are here this morning and you are in absolutely intractable relationships. Relationships in, that have just gone sour, they've gone sideways, and there, is, there seems to be no way to fix them. And, and you're tempted to think that the solution to that sin problem is, I don't know, to become more forgiving. Or, or maybe you think the solution to that sin problem is for, is, is for the other person, you know, to become more forgiving or to get their act together. But, but what we need to understand is that when we find ourselves in in intractable relationships, broken by sin, fundamentally, it's a problem of us defining ourselves by the wrong relationship. See, see, if if I think that my identity is finally in being forgiven by that other person, or if my identity is finally in them admitting they were wrong so that I can forgive them. That I'm defining myself by that relationship. And I'm not going to get very far, especially if it's gotten to that point of being intractable. No, I need to remember who I am. I am defined by my relationship with God. I am defined as someone who has been forgiven because of the cross of Jesus Christ who has been reconciled to God, which frankly should have been the most intractable, impossible relationship in my life. Because I have no way of making that relationship right. 
unless God takes the initiative to make it right. And that's what he's done in Christ. And that entirely changes my identity. So now as someone who is defined by that relationship with God, man, I am free to give up my control of this impossible relationship. I no longer have to be defined by it. It no longer has to remain intractable. Friends, the gospel comes to us and it doesn't teach us a set of rules for living. The gospel comes to us. And in that old, deep Roman sense of the word, it instructs us. It educates us. It transforms us from worldly barbarians to Christians. The gospel changes us because it comes to all of us right where we are, right where we need it. And it teaches us how to live now because it tells us who we are now in Christ and not just who we're going to be someday. Third, the gospel changes us because it reorients our hopes. It reorients our hopes. Look at verse 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even though the Christian life is lived in this present age, I'm just, just trying to give you some examples just, just a moment before. Even though it's lived in this present age with all of the problems and all the reality of this world, it is not finally lived for this present age. Our hope, according to Paul here, our hope is the glory of Christ's appearing. The glory of his visible return. And being found in him on that day. When Paul speaks of hope here, he doesn't mean wishful thinking. We've talked about this before. He means, I think, really two things. Both of these ideas contained in this one word. On the one hand, he means our confident expectation. Not wishful thinking, but confident expectation. Based on the power of God and the promise of God demonstrated at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Second, when he, when he talks about hope, he means our goal, what we're aiming for, what we're even now living for, based on our confidence in God's power and his promises. Now, we all know that goals matter. They matter at the level of decision making. Future hope determines present actions, whether you think it through consciously or not. That's the way we all live. Jesus said where our treasure is. There your heart will be also. He was using treasure as, as a metaphor to point to our hopes. So, so one of the questions to ask yourself today is, what are you hoping for? I mean, what are you really hoping for? What are the hopes that drive you? If our hope is for our best life now, then we will live our best life now. We will live this world lives. But if our hope is for life forever with God, If our hope is to hear Jesus Christ say one day, well done, good and faithful servant. We will live in light of that hope. We will live godly lives now. As Jim Elliott put it, 
He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Friends, this is what Christian hope is all about. It is really a different way of thinking about identity. It's a way of, of understanding that, that destination is identity. Where I think I'm going to end up very much determines who I think I am and how, therefore, I should be living. We all suffer from short-term thinking, which leads all of us to short-term living. What we need to remember that is as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel, we are playing a long game here. This isn't a short game. This is a long game. The horizon is not retirement. The, the, The horizon isn't even death. The horizon is Christ's return. The, the, the horizon is eternity with God. Future hope, therefore, does not disconnect me from this present age. To the contrary, my future hope allows me to give my life today its full due. Right? I, I can admit that life today is hard. I, I, can, I can admit that, that a lot of times life today, I, I, I don't like it. It doesn't go the way I want It's painful. And I don't have to pretend otherwise. But that future hope means I'm not dominated by life today either. Because my goal is set. And it's not in doubt. The gospel reorients our hopes. It allows us to live through trials without giving up. Fourth. The gospel changes us because Christ gave himself for us. The gospel changes us because Christ gave himself for us. Look at verse 14 or the end of verse 13. All speaks of Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. The gospel is not moral instruction. The gospel is not aspirational thinking. The gospel is a historical event with real world consequences. Jesus Christ died on the cross, really. And he was raised to life, really, in history. And the good news of the gospel is that his death for us as a substitute was not a mere demonstration of how much God loves us. It was a rescue mission. And it was a rescue mission that succeeded. Not a rescue mission that might succeed someday, but a rescue mission that actually succeeded right there on the cross. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is what you need to understand about the gospel. What Christ did on the cross and why he did it. Paul says that Christ died for us. That means Jesus Christ took our place there on the cross. He bore the punishment for our ungodliness that that we deserved. But it wasn't a vain sacrifice. It it, it wasn't just a a man jumping off a cliff, cliff shouting, I love you. See how much I love you. Which is, you know, moving, but doesn't do anything. No, it actually accomplished something. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ because of his death on the cross, we are actually set free from our slavery to sin, set free from our rebellion against God. 
we are, to use the language that Paul uses there, redeemed. Bought back out of slavery. Set free. Paul, we know, because of the verses right before this, was, was talking to slaves of men. But he wants them to know that because of the gospel, they are no longer slaves of sin. They no longer have to live according to their old master's rules, the commands of death and sin. They've been set free from that master. And they've been brought into service to a new master. Whose command is love. You see, we really haven't left the issue of identity. In the gospel, because of what Christ did, our identity changes from slaves to sin to free men and women. But the identity of our master changes too. From the old slave master of sin to the new master who is God himself and who loves us and proved it by giving his son for us. You just can't get away from the issue of identity, our identity, his identity. It's not just that Christ's death accomplished our freedom from sins, condemnation, and and control, though. Paul, Paul has two things there. Not only did he die in order to redeem us from all wickedness, but he gave himself for us to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Christ died in order to purify us. Now, now purity... Is, is an idea, that's, that's a word that we're quite happy to use when we talk about water, when we talk about ingredients. But it doesn't tend to be a word that we like to use when it comes to relationships. It sounds kind of sanctimonious. And that's not surprising because this is really temple language here. The, the, the items, the objects in God's temple had to be purified in order to even be present in the temple. Because God is holy. And so those, those objects would, would be purified. They would be set apart for God's use only. But I, I think we can get at this word purity and, and the idea of us being purified in a way that doesn't totally put us off. When we think of it in terms of marriage. Even today, in our modern secular culture, why does the bride wear white? Is it just tradition? Well, maybe in some cases. But in fact, what the white was meant to symbolize was the purity of the relationship that she was about to enter into. That this relationship, this marriage relationship was was unadulterated by any other lovers, but by any other competing relationships. Friends, on the cross, Jesus Christ purified his people. You see, we're the very people who have totally adulterated our relationship with God. We've filled our lives with other loves and other lovers. But on the cross, Jesus Christ purified us so that we could genuinely be clothed in white, the white of his righteousness for the wedding feast of the Lamb. You understand what's going on here. The effect of Christ's death for his people is not just legal. It's not just that we're declared not guilty, though we are. It's relational. On the cross, he removed the impurity, 
the adulteration that separates us from God, that separates us from one another, the adultery of our sinful, idolatrous lives. And what has he done? He's, he's given us new hearts. He's, he's changed our desires. He's given us new loves, and he's pledged himself to us as our one and only lover. And so in Christ, we become his people, chosen, special, a, a purified people, and therefore different. Therefore, people whose lives are different. As Christians, we now are eager to do what is good. We're eager to live godly, respectable lives. Now, we need to get the order right. First, what Christ does. Then the change in us. So we need to get the order right. But we also need to remind each other that the connection between what Christ has done for us and who we are now and how we now live, that connection is not optional either. It's a package deal. There are a lot of us sitting here this morning who don't feel very pure. Who look inside the recesses of our of our own hearts, who look inside the corners of our minds and we see a lot of junk. We see a lot of impurity. And, and the temptation at that moment is to run and hide, to, 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 try to, to try to clean ourselves up first and then come and present ourselves to God. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that Christ purifies you. You don't purify yourself. In Jesus Christ, because of what he did on the cross, we have been purified And we are purified. It is the indicative of what Christ has done that changes us and then moves us to live differently. I I think as, as parents, we have a real opportunity to teach this very counterintuitive truth. I mean, think about your, your own role as a parent. I'm I'm sure you're like me. I am constantly trying to remind my children how much I love them. Why do I do that? Well, because I'm also having to tell my children all the time that they should do this, not that. But I'm constantly reminding them how much I love them. And then from the standpoint of that love, call them to live differently. I I want them to know that my call to them to live differently, to do this, not that, is rooted in my love for them. It is not a condition of my love for them. Now, when my kids reject my love, when they do that instead of this, when when my kids spurn my love, when my kids ignore my love, there's discipline. But even more importantly, there is profound sadness. The love itself You know this as a parent. The love itself is not shaken. I do not love my kids because of what they do. I love my kids because of who they are. They're my kids. Because I love them, I call them to live differently. Friends, it is no different with God. His love in the gospel is rooted and grounded 
unshakably in the cross of Jesus Christ. And even before that, in the eternal decree in which he decided to love you. And that unshakable love changes you and calls you to be different. To to be who he made you to be. To be who he redeemed you to become. Sure, we disappoint him in his love. Sure, we, we look inside of our lives and we still find all sorts of impurity. But what we need to remember is that should drive us back to him because we cannot shake his love. He comes to us again and says again, repent and believe. It's not something you do once. Yes, you need to do it a first time in order to come into a relationship with God. But but you don't like then just do it and never come back to it again. No, this is where we live as Christians every day. Repent and believe. And so become who he made you to be. This is really what this supper is all about that we're about to celebrate. The Lord's Supper. Jesus gave us this meal to remind us that he gave himself for us. He said, this is my body given For you. This is why we celebrate it today. To remember who Jesus is. To remind ourselves of who we were. And to remind ourselves of who we now are. In Jesus Christ. Paul concludes. And so should we. By reminding Titus that it is the gospel that he should teach. With boldness, with authority. And so like Titus, this is the message we proclaim. Not a message from men, not not even a religious message, but a message from God about what God has done and what God will do in your life if today you will repent and believe and receive from him his love. I'm not begging you. We, we, We don't peddle this message. Instead, I'm declaring on God's authority, be reconciled with God today. Prove that reconciliation in your faith and repentance. Friends, this is what we need to be telling each other all the time. With teaching, with encouragement, with modeling, sometimes even with rebuke. Inside the church. And to those outside the church, this is what we declare whether it's popular or acceptable, whether it's tolerated or not, we have nothing else to say. We have nothing else we want to say because we cannot deny what God has done in our lives. He has changed us because of these truths. And so with John Newton, the notorious slave trader who found God's love, actually whose God's love found him, As he said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. 
By the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are astounded by your grace that would change us, that would, that would actually make us new creatures, that would include us in Christ and give us an identity, a, 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 a new identity that now says no to sin and that follows you. Increasingly, each day in this life and someday, when Christ returns perfectly. Oh Lord, we pray that, that we would give up our vain attempts at doing life differently. That instead we would accept your effective work of making us be differently. And that you would gain the glory from that transformation of us that we would always be quick to point that it was not our own efforts, but that it is the grace of God that has made us who we are and who we will one day be. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.